We're going to read the Bible now. You can follow along on your phones or there's hard copies up the back if you'd like to grab one. We're reading from 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Okay, my name is Paul, one of the pastors here at Soul Revival and I have um, a dubious pleasure to spend some time looking at that part of God's word with you. I don't know about you but that's fairly challenging and um, I'd like you to be able to pray with me. Can you pray? Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for your word but Lord we do humbly admit that we need your help that sometimes it's a bit hard to understand, sometimes it's extremely challenging. So Lord, please give us soft hearts and open minds so that we might be able to hear your word and respond to it correctly. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, here's a question. What does it look like to love somebody? Thankfully, uh, love is usually wonderful, heartwarming, joyful, but acts of love can also be extremely painful. A mother described her love for her 18-year-old son who had descended into drug addiction. She spoke of her most excruciating night as a parent. One night she had to pick him up from the police station. One night she found him unconscious in his bedroom. One night she gave him the ultimatum to get treatment or leave home. In a rage, he stormed out of the house. And as terrible as those nights were, the most excruciating night was yet to come. She described it this way. Suddenly, he was gone. One day turned into four days, which turned into more days. 
I had no idea where he was. I didn't know if he would ever come home and get help. I didn't know if he was alive. I couldn't eat, sleep or communicate. I tried searching to him to no avail. I was sick with worry. Then on the tenth night, around midnight, I heard a light tap at the door. Then a voice. Mum, let me in. Open the door. I was scared to death. My heart was beating so hard it felt like tiny earthquakes in my chest. I opened the door slightly and standing before me was my dirty, stick-thin and ghostly pale son. Mum, I need a place to sleep. I'm cold and hungry. And as my heart sliced itself up, I looked at him and said, you don't live here anymore. You made that decision ten days ago. You'll need to leave. I was turning my own son away at the entrance to our home. I knew I had to do the most excruciating thing I ever had to do in order to save my child. It went against every maternal instinct. It was an unbearable risk. The longer he stood there in the sickening silence, the more scared I became. Finally he spoke. I'll get help. Now as we read through 1 Corinthians chapter 5 just a minute ago, if you had to sum up that chapter, I wonder what words would come to your mind. Perhaps judgment? Anger? Punishment, severity, intolerance. How about love? A famous Christian thinker and writer said this. I've got it on the screen for us here to see. Nothing can be more cruel than that leniency which abandons others to sin. And nothing can be more compassionate than that severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. You see, friends, the Corinthian church was in danger. They were ignoring sin in themselves and ignoring sin in others, so much so they couldn't even see it anymore. Have a look at verse 1 here on the screen. It's actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, it's a shocking state of affairs. You wouldn't expect that type of tawdry tale to be recorded in the Bible, would you? You'd expect it in a trashy tabloid magazine, but not a holy book. But the most important thing to notice in this story is it's not a one-off event, but a continual unrepentant act by someone who considers himself a member of the church. Now, it's also most likely that the woman was not the man's own mother. If that had been the case, Paul would have said so. So rather than a case of incest, as some Bibles unhelpfully label it, it's actually a relationship between a man and his stepmother. But still, a type of immorality that was frowned upon by even the surrounding pagan culture and should have been unthinkable, unthinkable for God's people. 
Now, many people, people feel today that the church uh, is quite obsessed with the topic of sex and in particular highlighting all the dangers of sexual sin as if they're even worse than any other type of sin. Now, it's not that we grade sexual sin as the worst thing you could ever do. But friends, sadly, the effect of misusing God's good gift of sex is often more pervasive than other types of sin. We're going to read about that next week in chapter 6. The truth is here, Paul seemed to be less shocked by the immoral relationship than he was by the reaction of the church. Have a look at verse 2 here on the screen. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? And you are proud. Verse 6 even goes and say they boasted about it. They might have been boasting about their open-mindedness, their permissive spirit. Sounds sort of familiar, doesn't it? Their open-mindedness, their permissive spirit. Have you noticed that tolerance these days has become pretty much the most celebrated of virtues in our current society? But Paul is shocked. Shocked that the church wasn't filled with grief over this situation. They weren't filled with remorse and mourning. Why does this man feel that it's absolutely okay to carry on living this way, even feeling that he doesn't have to even hide what he's doing? Perhaps it could be that the Corinthians had confused the freedom that they had in Christ to mean that there was no boundaries in whatever lifestyle they chose. But if the Corinthians didn't see the danger to what was going on, Paul certainly does. Have a look at verse 4 and 5 here on the screen for you. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. In response to this situation, the church is commanded to gather and aware of Paul's authority as an apostle, and in the presence of the Lord Jesus, they are to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, and that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. It's a heavy verse, friends. That's heavy, being handed over to Satan demands a solemn response. It's a verse that should remind us about how serious sin is and lead us to grieve over it. Now, it's a tricky passage to understand. I mean, what does it mean to be handed over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? Doesn't that sound just a little bit over the top, a bit excessive? And how can you possibly save somebody by handing them over to Satan. But like that mother of the drug addict, Paul is willing to take this excruciating action, not because it will bring him a sense of satisfaction, but he wishes to save the man. The goal here, friends, is not punishment. It's restoration. And while the man is unrepentant, he can no longer be part of the church where Christ reigns. Rather, he's expelled to live outside the church where Satan still exercises his authority. And in that action, the hope is that he'll come to his senses, that he'll fall to his knees and repent. 
Paul is reluctantly handing this man over to Satan, like the mother in our story reluctantly handed her son over to the streets. It's a frightening thing to do, but it was a loving thing to do. Well, did the Corinthians follow Paul's command? What happened to the man? We're not told, clearly. But we do get a tantalising verse in the second letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where instruction is given about restoring a repentant sinner. Was it the man? We can just hope so. Now, as a Christian start to take um, moral purity more seriously, you can start to see a dilemma that starts to arise. Paul's told us not to associate with sinners, but I'm surrounded by sinners as I go about my daily life. Should that mean that we all pack up from here and head for the hills, set up a, a commune somewhere in a nice little valley, cut off from the world, making sure that we're not defiled? Well, in short... No. Sorry about that. If you're looking forward to a nice little holiday in the wilderness somewhere. That's not what we're called to do. Verse 9, I've got it here on the screen. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. Now, Paul understands that Christians are going to bump into the worldly people that might have questionable morality. The challenge is to live in that context and still shine, shine as a godly Christian. And I take it that this verse means that someone who's still checking out Christianity can come to church and fellowship here, eat with us, that sort of thing. Indeed, the church welcomes the seeker. And if that's you tonight, you're most welcome. You're most welcome to stay. Because every one of us has been in that position. The key, though, is this. After we accept Jesus as Lord and Saviour of our life, that Lordship will change the way we think and the way we behave. In the response, though, to the unrepentant sinner who claims to be a Christian but isn't, the response is very different. Verse 11 here on the screen. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Well, friends, have you noticed that actually the list here is getting a little bit broader? A little bit broader. We're not so hung up about sex anymore. And in case we're sitting on our high horse thinking, oh yeah, that would never be me going to that sort of scandalous situation. The failings now are getting pretty comprehensive. I mean, who at some point has not been guilty of jealousy or losing our temper or telling a lie? Now, even though it's important to acknowledge sin, Paul's not speaking here about someone who lapses into these sins, but someone whose identity is marked by this behaviour. So much so that they can be labelled a greedy person, a drunkard. That is, they engage in 
Habitual, systemic, unrepentant, sinful behaviour, and yet in spite of that, they still claim to be a Christian brother or sister. So the Christian who gets drunk and repents, the Christian who commits an act of dishonesty, dishonesty and repents, that type of person is not in view here. This is a, part, a person who rather has two competing identities. They want to be known as a brother and sister, but their behaviour identifies them as an unbeliever. Paul's saying we're not to associate with such a person. Cut them off from the fellowship or make it clear that they're not part of being a Christian, not part of the Christian family. And again, all this is being done out of a motivation of love, not punishment. The desired outcome is that they'll wake up, come to their senses and repent so they can be restored to the church family and their soul is saved when it comes to the day of the Lord. Well, it's a very difficult course of action and here we've been reading about it all being motivated for the sake of the individual but we must not forget that it's also motivated for the love of the rest of the congregation, of us all combined. But when an individual sin is not confronted, it has a pervasive effect throughout the whole church. I know if you've heard this, many people believe that their personal sin is okay just so long as it doesn't harm anybody else. I mean, that sort of attitude is really actually quite recent. It springs out of our individualistic culture, which is not being connected to the vast stretch of history, of history and time, where most societies are actually far more connected as, as ours was in the recent past. But even in our individualistic world, sin is never strictly a personal act. It's never about my choices alone. It always has an impact on the lives of others. We are relational beings. And so sin will always find a way to spread like a virus. Have a look at verse 6 here on the screen. Your boasting is not good. Do you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Whatever it was that the Corinthians thought was so great about their church is in fact undercut by this horrible sin that they had permitted to go on in their midst. While they were boasting, a terrible toxin had been spreading like yeast through dough. That's the picture Paul's using here. I don't know if you, we've got any bread makers here? Any people who make bread? Any? None? One. <laughs> Two, maybe. Well, just to update you, the reason that bread gets fluffy and light is because it has yeast in it. But you only need to take a tiny, tiny pinch of yeast to add to a big batch of dough and it'll make it all spread and rise. And as a little bit of yeast spreads through the whole dough, likewise a little bit of sin can spread and infect a whole church. Paul's saying here, the sins you're turning a blind eye to that you're failing to address, that's a really big deal. And it's going to contaminate the whole church. 
And so that's why Paul say in verse 7 here on the screen, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now the picture's shifting a little bit. The image now moves to the Passover festival and the events of the Exodus. The nation of Israel was commanded to make bread without yeast. Do you remember in the days of the Exodus? Before they could flee out of slavery in Egypt. And every year from that point on, the Jews would rid their homes of yeast so they could recall their formation as God's holy people set apart for him. Now, friends, let me make it really clear what Paul is not saying here. He isn't saying that the rest of the Corinthian church is a group of perfect people and there's this one sinner in their midst that sticks out like a sore thumb. Rather, Paul's saying that we're all sinners, all of us, and our cleansing is a gift that's been given to us, a gift that is faith through Jesus. Perfection is not the requirement for ongoing fellowship in the church, but rather our lives need to be marked by ongoing repentance, ongoing faith in Christ. Faith in Christ who is our Passover lamb, who was sacrificed for our sin. That's why we do a prayer of confession every time we gather. Well, it's a hard-hitting passage. It's pretty heavy. But it's vital. It's vital that we understand that Paul's words are rooted in his love for the church. It can't have been easy for Paul to write that letter. It would have been far easier to ignore the situation. I know I would have been tempted to do that. I would have been embarrassed, ashamed to talk about such things. So it might have been easy just to zip it. But as Bonhoeffer reminded us, nothing can be more loving than that severe reprimand which calls another Christian to turn away from their path of sin. And Paul extends his love to the church further in a final plea. So in the middle of verse 7 he says, get rid of that old yeast so that you may be new unlevered batch as you really are. He's saying, become the people that you really are. In fact, the people that you already are. You know how Paul started his letter to the Corinthians? I've got chapter 1, verse 2 here on screen for you. Paul writes, To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be his holy people. He's saying, you're a new creation, and we've called to be the light to the world, and to live a life that reflects his work of grace in our hearts. Now this is our true identity. And so, in closing, verse 8, here on the screen. Therefore let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul is saying, let's keep the festival. Let's be Passover people, but not once a year. Let's be Passover people every day, every day, every moment. Be people who live in the light of the once and for all atoning sacrifice. So I ask you, do you depend on that sacrifice for you? Do you depend on the cleansing that you've received through the blood of Jesus?
If so, then do you pursue a life that fulfills your calling, your calling to be one of his holy people, full of sincerity and truth? It could be that you need a little bit of help to do that. Just as the drug-addicted son was only able to return home when he finally admitted that he needed help, God has given us each other to bear our burdens. Do you long to change, to become who you already are, a new creation? Then you've got to start. You've got to start by being honest. Honest to yourself. Honest to God. And honest with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray to that end now. Let's pray. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Dear Lord Jesus, we do thank you for being our Passover Lamb, for your sacrifice that has cleansed us and changed us to become your holy people. Lord, we pray that you will deliver us from evil. Teach us to lovingly rebuke correct and to forgive each other and help us all to live a new life to your glory full of sincerity and truth and it's in the name of Jesus we pray Amen